Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Well, good morning, church. Why don't you open up to the ninth chapter of Romans. We have been on a couple of two or three month hiatus from our walk through, preach through the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and we're going to pick that back up and make some progress here in the, in the weeks and months ahead. The last time that we were in Romans, <clears throat> we were at the last part of the ninth uh, chapter up to verse uh, 29. We're going to pick that up there, but it's going to be important um, since it's been a period of time uh, to do a little refresher here. And so I'm going to take the first portion of the message here and I'm going to try to try to condense this a little bit in the second service here, but I'm going to try to do what is a pretty big challenge for me. I'm going to try to fly through nine chapters uh, for you just to kind of a 30,000-foot mock flyover because it's really critical to see the setup to understand the text today. You cannot just jump in at verse 30 and understand what's been going on unless you've been looking back and seeing the context from which the text flows. So here's an overview of Romans 1. Through nine. In the first chapter, 16th verse, Paul opens with a thesis. And he says in that verse, in the 17th verse, that in the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 16, he said, that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The good news about Jesus Christ contains the saving power from God to everyone who believes. That's what the gospel is. It is the power of God Verse 16, verse 17, he gets more specific and he tells us why the power of God in the gospel can save. And it's because in verse 17, it's because of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. The gospel is about the righteousness of God. The good news is that the righteousness of God Himself has been made available. That's the good news. And that righteousness of God is so powerful, it can take a sinner and make him righteous, make him just. Having stated that thesis statement, Paul then begins the story. And he immediately follows by explaining why it is that salvation is necessary. I mean, he's making the point that there's a way to be saved. Well, why be saved? And the reason has to do with a problem, a significant problem. In fact, a pandemic problem that hovers over the human race from its genesis to its end. And the problem is this, it's the wrath of God. 
And he begins to talk about, in the middle of chapter 1, the wrath of God. And he starts taking like a net of God's wrath, like he's casting it out. It's the way I picture that. And he begins to cast it out over groups of people. And by the time he gets to the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, he has cast the net of the wrath of God over every single human group and over every single human being. That all of us are under the wrath of God. And it's because all of us are rebels at heart. We're ruined to the core by sin. We're depraved. He says, right in the middle of the third chapter, there is no one good, no, not one. So we have this problem. And we need a Savior. A Savior to save us from, from what? From God. We have a Savior. We need a Savior to save us from God Himself. And so the question is, who is up to the challenge of saving us from God? And there's only one answer to that question, church. It's God. Only God is up to the challenge to save us from God. And then Paul in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26 He tells us how God has made a way. And He's made a way through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. That what Jesus Christ did and what the Father did through Jesus is that He offered Jesus, He sent Jesus to come for the very purpose of satisfying the justice of God. You see, from the Garden of Eden and forward up until the day that Paul wrote that third chapter of Romans, the human race has been sinning and we've continued that program down through history. And the justice of God, His holiness is offended by that. His justice demands that something be done about that sin that we are guilty and we deserve to be punished, but for some reason God was forbearing. He was holding that back. And then Jesus came and the gospel came to light. And the reason that God was holding back His judgment against sin was that He was bringing His Son and what His Son would do would live a perfect life spotless, righteous before His Father, without sin, and yet would willingly go to the cross. And on the cross, He would take our sin. He would own it as He committed it Himself. And then on the cross, the very holy, perfect Son, having taken our sin, would have the wrath of the Father poured out in full measure, in full degree, into His own life so that Jesus would satisfy the just demands of the holiness of God by receiving in Himself the condemnation for human sin. Jesus is the only way to be saved. And then... In chapters 4 and 5, what Paul does is he reaches back into Old Testament history. This is long before Jesus arrived and he uses examples. He uses Abraham's life and he says it's always been the plan of God. He didn't change his plan, his redemptive plan for human need for human sin and depravity, for this unrighteousness that puts us under His condemnation. The plan of God has always been that He would provide a Savior, His Son, 
and that through faith in Him, salvation would be granted. It's always been the plan. And then in Romans chapter 6 and 7, what Paul does is he seemingly takes a little detour, but he does it for a very good reason. A couple of objections, concerns need to be answered because he was preaching this gospel of the free grace of God lavished upon sinners unworthy of it. And so some wanted to take the grace of God, the free grace of God, and make it the cheap grace of God. They wanted to say, well, if that's the way it works, let's just sin some more and let grace abound. And so he spent two chapters dealing with that heretical view. And then we come to chapter 8. Oh, chapter 8. Chapter 8. Chapter 8 of Romans is considered by many, including this preacher, to be the single greatest chapter in Scripture. It is a chapter that is packed from the opening statement to the closing statement of the almost 40 verses packed full of the greatest promises of God and the grand overall theme stated over and over and over again in a number of ways and profound development is that those that have been saved by the work of Jesus Christ that have put their faith in Jesus, they are saved forever. They are safe and secure in their salvation. And there is nothing, nothing on earth, nothing in the heavenly realms, nothing and no one that can separate them from the love of God. He makes that promise in so many ways. And then comes chapter 9. And what Paul does in chapter 9, and even in chapter 10, and even in chapter 11, is that he has to deal with a dilemma. A dilemma that has been set up by his teaching and progression of thought in the first eight chapters particularly this culminating chapter of all of the promises of God that are ours that can never be changed to those who are His. And here is the dilemma. It could be stated by an objector something like this. Men, Paul, those are great promises in the 8th chapter of Romans. Great promises if they're really true. But you see, what about the case of the Jew? Men, they were a people that were God's very own people called the chosen people of God. A people that God protected down through the Old Testament and directed and provided for and led and delivered and fought for. I mean, they were the people that had all the privileges from God and they were the people that God had given a book full of promises to, a book called the Old Testament. And those promises included... The same promises that you are giving in the 8th chapter of Romans, this promise of eternal life and glory with Christ. So here's the question. I'm looking at the world, Paul, today, and the vast majority in wholesale fashion of the Jews, the People of the promise, the vast majority of them are outside of the blessing of God. They're lost. They're not saved. They're not justified. They're not righteous before God. They're lost. What about all the 
promises that God made to them? How can we believe that God is going to be trustworthy in the promises of Romans 8 if He hasn't been faithful to the promises that He made throughout all of the Old Testament to the Jew? Do you see the problem? It needs to be answered. And so for three chapters... What Paul does is he shows the overall campaign of the redemptive purposes of God over human history, his salvation campaign. And he kind of does it in three phases. He shows a look at the past in chapter 9, and a look at the present in chapter 10, and a look at the future in chapter 11 that encompasses all people groups. And what he says to them in chapter 9, is that he sets about answering the dilemma by addressing three different objections related to that idea. The first one is found in the ninth chapter in verse 6. Ninth chapter, verse 6 is preceded by 9, 1 through 5. And in 9, 1 through 5, Paul is in anguish over the lost condition of the Jewish people, his people. He's a Jew. He talks about how his heart is broken. They're the people with all of these privileges of God, and yet the reality is, They're accursed and cut off from Christ. And so here's the objection that comes up in verse 6. Has the Word of God failed? I mean, that's the question. That applies to the Jew, but it also applies to the follower of Christ who's banking on Romans 8. Has the Word of God failed? And what he does, the answer that he gives there, so profound simple yet profound, he said, God's word has not failed. And here's why. Because not everybody that is Israel by ethnicity is Israel by heart. Not everybody that is born into the nation of Israel that's a Jew by birth is a true Israelite, is a true children or a child of the promise. It's only the children of the promise that are a part of God's chosen or a part of God's elect. And so what he does then as he develops the ninth chapter is he shows them it's not that the promise of God has failed, it's that they misunderstood the promise. And he quotes over and over again, example after example in the Old Testament history to show that what God has always done is he has been working a program of election to salvation. And that election is this. God in His eternal counsels, in His eternal decrees, aside from anything that we do, He chooses those He elects unto salvation. He chooses. Not because He saw something in us. Not because of anything that we had done. He uses three or four different examples to make that so explicit that it's all about His unconstrained choice his free choice to elect and to save those whom he chooses. So God's word has not failed. Everyone that is a child of the promise is a part of God's chosen, and everyone he elects when it's the right time, he calls them to himself in salvation. Second objection in verse 14 follows the answer to the first objection. And the second objection is this. Well, if God saves only the elect, doesn't that make Him an unjust God? Doesn't that make Him an unfair God? Paul responds by showing that God has made it very clear in His Word. And he quotes from the Old Testament. And he uses an example to show this. He quotes and says that God has the right to do as He chooses. God has the right to dispense His mercy 
and his wrath according to his wisdom, his just wisdom. And not only does God have the right, God exercises the right, and he gives the example, the the clear example of Egypt and Pharaoh. And having answered that objection, then comes objection 3 in the 19th verse of chapter 9. And the objection there is, if God gives mercy freely and without constraint, if He just chooses whom He's going to have mercy on, if He just makes that decision, not based upon anything in the individual, but just out of His own eternal decrees, if God does that, then how can God find fault with us because who can resist the will of God? And the first thing Paul says in response to that is this. Who are you to talk back to God? God has the right to do what He wants with His creation. He's God. He's God. Just like the potter has the right over the clay to make some vessels for noble and some for ignoble, some for honorable and dishonorable use, God is God and infinitely more has the right to do what He chooses to do with His creation. And the second answer that He gives in verses 22 to 24, He gives a partial answer to the question that how can God still find fault and He answers it in a way that's a little difficult for the finite mind to grasp, but it goes something like this, that God in dispensing His wrath on the vessels of wrath, what that does is that it displays a part of the person and character of God. It sets a backdrop so that when He lavishes His mercy on the vessels that He is going to save, on the elect, it shows them in vivid contrast a truth about God they couldn't have seen had the wrath not been there. It helps them to see the greatness and the brilliance of the mercy of God in a way that they could not have understood so that God is ultimately, here's the answer, ultimately working at bringing Himself the greatest glory by the way He chooses to operate with men. And that's the right thing for Him to do because this universe is about His glory. It's about His glory. That's what it's all for. And then what He does in verses 25 to 29 of Romans 9 is that he begins to show that it's not just a remnant of the Jews, a small number of the elect that are saved, but there's also another people group called the Gentiles. And that the Gentiles have always been a part of God's plan. That His plan stated in the Old Testament, as Paul draws out in those verses 25 to 29, is that God was going to bring a harvest in from the Gentiles. He was going to elect and draw Gentiles to Himself and make them a part of the community with the remnant of the Jews. And that is the setup for the four verses that I want to cover today in Romans 9, 30 through 33. So let me just read those four verses for you and then we'll look at seeing what God says and what God means by what He says. Romans 9, 30 Paul says, what shall we say then? How are we going to draw a conclusion based upon all that has proceeded? What is the summary idea? What shall we say then? That Gentiles, here's what we should say, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith but that Israel, 
who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they, the Israelites, did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They, Israel, has stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What I want to show you in those four verses is that Paul does three things. The first thing he does in verses 30 and 31 is that he describes the situation of his day in the church the composition of the church. He describes it. And then in the next verse, he explains it, the situation, why it is the way it is. And then finally, he reaches back into Scripture again, back into the Old Testament to validate the truth by Scripture of what he has just said. So let me show you those three things. First of all, his description of the, the makeup, the composition of the church of his day. He says in verse 30 and 31 that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued that law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So first of all, for us to understand what Paul Ultimately, what God, who inspired Paul to write, what God is saying here is we have to understand what he means by the word righteous or righteousness. It's a word that in the Greek here would be synonymous with the idea of justification or we could even say salvation. And it just means this, that if you're righteous, what you are is you're in a right standing with God. Before the holy, just God, you're in a good place before him, a right place. That means that he finds you faultless before his holy throne. You are just or justified or righteous. There is nothing that he can bring against you. You're right before him. That's what the idea conveys. It's really critical that you understand that because in these four verses, that word is used three times and inferred a fourth time. And so to understand the flow of thought, you have to grasp what that word means and then Secondly, let's look at what Paul says about the Gentiles. What does he say? Gentiles again, that just means non-Jew. Everybody that's not a Jew is a Gentile. Most of us in this room, maybe all, are Gentiles. What did he say about the Gentiles? He said the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness. They weren't looking for or striving to Be righteous before God. They weren't laboring to follow the details of the plan and the law of God so that they would be right before Him. In fact, if you read Romans 1 and Romans 2, you'll find out that not only were they not striving for the righteousness and obedience to the law of God, they were running fast and furious into rebellion. They were after whatever they could get for flesh and eye. And shockingly, what Paul says about them is that those who didn't pursue what would lead to righteousness or didn't strive after righteousness, what happened is that they attained it. Do you see that there? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That means it's theirs. So here's the condition, the composition of the church of Paul's day. This is maybe 30 years following the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. The the Christian church has exploded and it's made up primarily of Gentiles. The vast majority is Gentiles who have come in to the faith. These are Gentiles who didn't care anything about the righteousness before God. And yet Paul says they got it. They attained it. 
And how do they attain it? By faith. By faith. Now look at what he says about the Jews. That's what he said about the Gentiles. What did Paul say about the Jews, about Israel? He said that Israel, they did pursue a law that would lead to righteousness. In fact, what we know is they pursued it aggressively. Paul is the poster child here. He's a Pharisee in the past of Jew, a Jew that was a Pharisee, and he was so zealous for the law, trying to do every single thing that he could do in obedience. He was zealous after the things of God. That was the situation of the Jew. And you know, there are so often that that's true today. And then secondly, here's what he said, but the Jews did not succeed in their pursuit of righteousness. They were after it all out, but they did not get there. Now I want to, I'll do that in a minute, I want to point out a a slight difference in the words that are used that will help bring out a truth. But before I show that, let me jump to the second part, and that is the, that's the description of the composition of the church. Now look at what Paul says by way of explanation. Why is it the way that it is? Verse 32, why? Because the Israelites or the Jews do not pursue righteousness by faith but as if it were based on works. The Jews didn't obtain righteousness because they didn't pursue it by faith. How did they pursue it? They attempted to pursue righteousness based upon what they did, based upon their own effort, their own works, their own attempts to make themselves right before God. So let me highlight the difference now in what he has said in a couple of words or phrases between Gentile and Jew. He said, the Jews who didn't pursue righteousness, they, quote, attained it. And that, that's the, I'm sorry, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, quote, attained it. The Jews who did pursue it were not successful in their pursuit. If you're reading the NIV, it might say that they did not obtain, ob, obtain. Here's the difference between attain and obtain. It's like the difference between an inheritance and a wage. The Gentiles, who weren't even interested in the righteousness of God, it was given to them as a gift. The Jews, who were all out for it, trying to earn it, they didn't make it. So what I want you to see here that is a perfect complement to the first 29 verses of chapter 9, I want you to see related to the Jew here not only what Paul did say, but what didn't he say. Did you notice that when he's talking about this kind of wholesale lost condition of the Jew, he's not saying anything about the election of God. He's not saying they're all lost because God didn't elect them. He's saying they're lost because of something they did. Do you see that? Why didn't they succeed in attaining righteousness? Because they pursued it by their own efforts. They're at fault. They're at fault. Here's the point. Everyone that is saved is saved because of the sovereign work of God. Everyone that is lost is lost because of their own actions and their own responsibility. That is always the way God packages both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. 
You're going to be saved. It's going to be because of the work of God, Him coming to you when you're dead in your sin, when you can't see spiritually or hear spiritually or understand spiritually, when you're as good as dead, He comes and regenerates and wakes you up so that now you can see and hear and understand. And not only that, but what you see and hear and understand is so winsome and attractive that it draws you to Him to put your faith in Christ, a faith that He first puts in you. It's the sovereign work of God. But if you remain in your rebellion, you're complicit in that. It is your fault. It is your sin that has made you guilty so that there is this, what it looks like as a dichotomy but really is a paradox between the divine sovereignty of God in salvation and the human responsibility in condemnation. God is never faulted as the one who is to blame for people condemned and under His wrath. It's always at the fault of the individual. But everyone that is saved has received a sovereign work and free gift of God. That's why Paul writes about this Jew and Gentile situation the way that he does, perfectly complementing everything he said in the first 29 verses when he's been talking about election and the work of God and now human responsibility. Now let's look at the third section here. So, description, the way that the church was, mostly a Gentile church. Why? Because God was working in a major way, drawing in many Gentiles. He had elected many Gentiles in the eternal decree of His decisions in the past, and He was bringing them into the kingdom And there was only a remnant of Jews that were saved as a description. And it's just so upside down. The Gentiles hadn't went after it, but they got it. The Jews so went after it, and they didn't get it. Why does it work that way? That's the problem that Paul is dealing with. And then here, finally, after the description and explanation comes the validation from Scripture in verses 32b and 33. Paul reaches 700 years back into Jewish history and he quotes from the prophet Isaiah two passages, Isaiah 28, 16 and Isaiah 8, 14. And here's what he says. Referring, Isaiah here, is referring to the Messiah. He's referring to a messianic prophecy. He's looking 700 plus years into the future and he is writing about the Messiah that is to come, the Savior that is to come. And here is what he says, referring to the Jews, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I am laying In Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What Paul does there is he takes these two quotes from Isaiah and he puts them together to make a point. And his point is this, that Jesus Christ is the rock. That Jesus Christ is the one that Isaiah was referring to. And to some, Jesus is a stumbling stone. To others, he's a rock of offense, but to some, he's the rock of salvation. So let me just highlight those three. Why is Jesus to some a stumbling stone? What is a stumbling stone? Well, a stumbling stone is something that is sitting there in the ground that you don't see or is hidden there in the grasses that you don't notice and you're walking along and all of a sudden you stumble. It catches your foot or your toe and it trips you up. You stumble over it because you didn't know it was going to be there. You didn't expect it to be there. Paul says here that 
to the Jews, Jesus was a stumbling stone. He's repeating what Isaiah said would happen 700 years earlier. Why was Jesus a stumbling stone to the Jew? Well, think about it. They had a whole Old Testament book of promises that were all really centralized in this Messiah that was to come. They were waiting for this great deliverer, this one that would come in majesty and power and cure their ills. And then all of a sudden, here comes this Jewish carpenter's son from the backwater little town of Nazareth from a family that was a no-name family in a little jerkwater part of the country that nobody knew, and he's supposed to be the Messiah? Come on, that's ridiculous. That's ludicrous. That's crazy. And so they weren't looking down there, right? Jesus was lowly. He was humble. He's like a rock laying on the ground to them that they take no account of. And as they were looking for the Messiah, they just tripped over him. It didn't make any sense to them. He was a stumbling stone. You know he is that today to people? Nothing has changed. What God in the flesh? Come on. Yeah, good guy. Said some good things. Maybe one of the great teachers of history. But God in the flesh? Come on, you're, you're crazy. They're not looking for that. doesn't make sense. It's foolishness and people trip over him. To some, he's a rock of offense. And I would even say this, not only to some, I think to every unsaved person, he's a rock of offense. Here's what I mean by that. Why does he offend? Here's why. Because the news of Jesus, the good news about Jesus, comes with the package of this He is the only way. Period. He is the only way. And if you try in any measure to merit yourself before God, you misunderstood the good news of Jesus. You are depraved and hopeless and helpless and lost and under God's wrath and justly condemned. What you need is a Savior that will do it all for you. And Jesus is that Savior. You see, the reason He's an offense is because what the gospel of Jesus does is it swings its axe at the very root of the problem of the human heart, which is pride. And it completely wipes out pride because to accept the gospel, you got to come to the end of yourself and say, that's right, I cannot do anything. And that is against the human nature. We want to do something to make a difference in our own salvation. We, even if it's one degree or one-tenth of one degree, we want to be a part of the answer to our own dilemma. And the gospel of Jesus says, no way, no way. It is Jesus alone. You are a rebel. So to many, and that is just as true not only to the Jews of Paul's day who were working so hard to be righteous, but that still strikes at the cord of every center of every human heart to say you can't do anything. You are worthy of the sentence of eternal condemnation. Everything has to be done for you. But then to some, I'll close with this. Jesus is not a stumbling stone or a rock of offense. He's the rock of salvation. He's the rock of salvation. He's the rock upon which you can build. He is the cornerstone. He's the one, if you get anchored into, I wish I could take some time 
to open up the passages that refer to Jesus as the rock. You get your life anchored in Jesus Christ. And here's the truth. Nothing is going to shake that foundation. Nothing. No circumstances. No person. No spiritual force. No time. Nothing. It is an unmovable, unshakable, unbreakable foundation. The person of Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. He's also the capstone. Psalms 118.22 The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I believe some translations actually use capstone. Capstone as the building went up, it's the stone that tied everything together and brought completion and strength to the structure. Here's a story from Israel's history. Temple was being built. Solomon's temple. David, Solomon's father, had longed to build the temple and had made a lot of preparations and given a lot of provisions, but David was a man of war and God dictated that Solomon would be the one that would build the temple and Solomon in his wisdom set about the task with just a country full of laborers. But he didn't want any stone cutting to be done at the temple site, the holy site. All of that had to be done in the quarry. They had to mine the rock out of the quarry and cut it to exact specifications there and then. And these are, these are, I've been to the holy lands. I've seen some of the foundational stones and stones in the wall will blow your mind how large these are. And they had to move them to the build site and as that was progressing, they received, the builders at the building site received one stone that they couldn't figure out where the stone went. It just didn't fit anywhere. They finally figured it was just a, it was trash, it was a piece of junk, and so they threw it out, they cast it out. Building continued until they were ready for the capstone. And so they sent word to the quarry, where's the capstone? And the quarry said, we sent the capstone a long, a long time ago. Capstone is already there. And so they went to looking for the capstone and they found this stone that they had discarded. And they took it and they set it into place and it was a perfect fit to complete the structure and that building the temple. And the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone, the stone of salvation that they took outside of the city and they nailed to a cross and said, He's worthless, He's nothing. And then comes the death on Friday and the despair on Saturday and the daybreak on Sunday morning. A daybreak that revealed a stone that had been rolled away and a tomb that was empty. And to those who will see and look with discernment from the Old Testament promises to the life of Jesus, what you find out is that the stone, the one that the builders rejected, is in fact the cap stone. It's the person of Jesus Christ. It's His life and His death and His resurrection that takes care of satisfying the justice of God and only His. It's His 
sacrifice that pays the penalty for sin. It's His resurrection that grants new life. It's His return that is the hope to our lives. He's the capstone. He's the capstone. So the question is, what are you trusting in? I don't mean mostly in. What are you trusting fully in and only in, exclusively in? Is it the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the only Savior that can save you from God. Why? Because He is God who came to save you from God, from the wrath of God by absorbing it in Himself. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Father, have your way, Lord. Have your way. Help us, Lord. I know that the ninth chapter of Romans is without question the hardest chapter in all of Scripture to preach closely through it. It's offensive to many. And Lord, my my heart hurts over this that I know that there are those that have left this church because of the preaching of the ninth chapter of Romans. I pray for them. I want the best for them, Lord. Put them right where you want them to be. What I'm praying for those that are here right now, I, I pray that you would enable us with eyes of faith to see the beauty of the gospel in the ninth chapter of Romans. To see the beauty of the fact that God is sovereign in salvation. Because God, if you were not, we would all be on the way to eternity in hell, period. Thank you that you're sovereign. So, Lord, uh, glorify yourself, I pray. There's any here that is not in a right standing with you, would you regenerate them, I pray, through the truth of what has been preached. Would your Holy Spirit wake them from death to life, help them to see and understand, woo them to yourself, Lord. Give them a desire and a faith to believe unto salvation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.